Welcome to Much More Than the Law, a production of the law firm of Much Shellist. I'm your host, Ed Shapiro. On Much More Than the Law, we're going to introduce you to the heartbeat of our firm, its people. We will discuss uh, developments in the law. We'll get to know some of our clients and community partners. And our goal is simply to inform, educate, and inspire, and, and maybe share a few laughs along the way. Our guest today is Cheryl Halpern, chair of our Labor and Employment Group. Uh, Cheryl, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Ed. So we have a lot to talk about in terms of you know current legal issues that you're dealing with for our firm clients, but we both participated in a wonderful presentation yesterday by uh, Ann Deppner, who's the uh, Director of Inclusion and Employee Investment for the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, I, I found her talk uh, inspiring, very, very informative. I thought she was incredibly vulnerable talking about her experiences, like you as a outside of the home working mom, right? Um, and I, I just wanted to get your impressions and, you know, of, of what uh, what she had to say. I, I'll tell you first that throughout her program yesterday, I started getting texts and emails from the clients that I had invited to the program with comments about whatever resonated with them at that particular moment. And something she said resonated with everybody. Um, and, you know, we're all, like you said, you know, working moms and uh, it's, it's sort of a different journey, I think, for a working mom than it is for anybody else. The point that she made that I think resonated most with me was when she said that she felt like a cat in a flock of penguins when she first entered that male-dominated world of the NFL. I remember very vividly feeling much like that. There are many, many times where I'm the only woman in the room and trying to strike that balance between fitting in and being who you are is definitely something that I had to learn over the years. It's not, it's not trying to fit in with the penguins, even though you're a cat, it's trying to be the cat that you are and be successful with it. It's it's interesting that you say that. I, I think one of the things that, or one of the ways I describe our firm uh, is that there is no much shellist type lawyer. You can carve out and be the type of lawyer you want to be that is authentic to you and real for you, um, because that's really how you can best serve our clients and, and give your best self to, to helping them get through uh, their uh, legal issues and, and other issues that, that they may come to you for. I found it striking and, and um, you know refreshing that the first thing she talked about uh, was the struggles that she had with her daughter and her daughter's anxiety and how she was uh, public about that and continues to be public about that uh, and really showing the type of vulnerability that mm -hmm. I think, you know, lawyers are always dissuaded from showing uh, because it shows some sort of weakness. And she explained how it's really been a gift and opened up a world for her. I found it incredibly brave, actually, because, you know, we're we're sort of taught early on that we're supposed to be strong and never show weakness. And, you know, frankly, I think that's a bunch of bull. It's not easy to get to where any of us have gotten, male or female, in the profession. And, it you know, there are definitely challenges along the way. And I think that it was very real and very brave of her to acknowledge that it wasn't easy for her 
because it's not. And everybody's path is very different. And it was very interesting listening to her path and how she started out in a you know, administrative role, very entry-level role when she joined the organization and the heights that she's been able to achieve by, I think, largely by being herself. That phrase that she used, send the elevator down, right, to bring others up. Um, I, I've never heard anyone uh, use that, that phrase, and I thought it was just a, a tremendous phrase and a meaningful phrase as we try to figure out, as the legal profession, as well as other law firms and our own law firm try to figure out how to make that happen. Exactly. And I think that we as you know, successful women in the profession, not you, but <laughs> we, me amongst other women who have been able to achieve a, a certain level of success, really have an obligation to send that elevator back down and to mentor and assist and help grow the younger generation. Because as she said, you know, there's a lot of value that women can bring to the table. Yeah. When she talked about you know, asking herself, you know, and 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 challenging everyone on that call to say, you know, who who am I giving stretch opportunities to? Um, I thought that was a, a great question and and a great um, thought to leave in all of our minds as we work on, on a day to day basis to try to help whomever, the next generation of lawyers, people within our firm, and so forth. So. Um, I'm really glad we had that opportunity to to hear her. So you grew up, you're a suburban Chicago kid, right? Grew up I am. In, uh, in Arlington Heights and Buffalo Grove area. You, like, like me, have an older brother. So we have that in common. We have another thing in common, too. We both happen to have children of the same age, junior in college and, and a senior in high school. What is life like for you, your two kids at, at those ages, one in college and, and one about to go to college? You could probably answer this question exactly the same way I will. It's such an interesting process to watch your kids grow up and to strike that balance between still being their parent and letting them grow into the adults that they are. My daughter is a junior at Denison, and uh, I, I will say that that one of the silver linings of the pandemic was having her home from March until August. She's turned into this incredible young adult who has ideas of her own and uh, is actually thinking about going to law school, which both delights me and terrifies me at the same time. And my son is uh, waiting for college acceptances so that he can figure out what his path is going to be, looking to play basketball in college as well as, as the academic curriculum. And I, you know, in all candor, they are two of the most inspiring people I have in my life because they are independent and kind and well-spoken. And I'm really proud of everything that they've been able to do. And, and I just hope, you know, you always hope as a parent that you've been able to give them the tools that they can use to go out there and really flourish in their lives. And I'm really hoping that I didn't screw them up too much. <laughs> it is amazing to see that transformation and the work that goes into it, right? It, it doesn't happen by accident. Now, in terms of your pathway into college and then, um, you know, influences perhaps that, that led you to, to the career that, that we both had for a very long time, talk a little bit about, about that journey for you. I originally in college wanted to go into marketing and advertising. And if I'm being perfectly honest, my grades weren't good enough to get into the College of Communication at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. 
And so I had to decide on a, on a major other than marketing and advertising, which is where I thought I was going to go. I was deathly afraid of public speaking. So I decided to immerse myself in it by taking a speech communication course, which required me to have to get up in front of my classmates and give speeches throughout the semester. Somewhere in my basement is a VHS with, a, with one of my speech comm classes from college. And if I can find a VHS recorder to play it on, I'll, I'll dig that up someday. But I, I became a, a speech communications major because after going through even just a couple classes, I conquered my fear and I developed a love for public speaking. Um, I was actually one credit shy of an anthropology minor, and I'm not really sure what I wanted to do with that, but it's neither here nor there. So, so I became the speech comm major and took every speech comm class that I could and really found my passion for it, but wasn't really sure how to parlay that love and that skill into a career. So I set a goal for myself and said, if I get this particular score on the LSAT, which to this day, I don't know what that number was, but it was the number in my head. I'm going to go to law school. And that's exactly the score that I got. So I went to law school, um, had a very typical law school experience, probably much like yours or any of our colleagues. But in thinking about what was really the the, the key impetus that got me set on going to law school was uh, I was a student in an intro to law class in college. And the law school contacted our teacher and said, I need volunteers to sit on a mock jury for the trial advocacy class that they were teaching. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I raised my hand. I said I'd go. And I went and sat on this jury. It was a criminal trial that the law students were putting on. And I was fascinated by what they were doing. And it was, you know, some of it was like it was on TV, LA Law and so forth. But it was really, I was really impressed with what they were able to do. And unfortunately, I was waitressing at a restaurant in town at the time, and I had to get to work. See, I even had the work ethic back then, Ed. And so I had to leave, and the jurors weren't done deliberating. So I actually hung the jury because I I needed to get to work on time. But after observing one particular student who was the mock lawyer in the trial, I decided I wanted to go to law school. That paired with the LSAT grade kind of clinched it for me. And the the guy that I'm speaking of turned out to be one of my partners and and my closest friend at my firm that I was at before I came to Machellist, where I spent 14 years of my career. When they hired me there, I, I was hired as a commercial litigator. And during the interview, I said to the managing partner of the firm, you know, I, I understand you're bringing me in as a commercial litigator, but I'm going to be an employment lawyer and I'm going to build an employment law practice for you. And he kind of the response he gave me was kind of like, oh, sure, you know, kind of placating me, but but moving on. And what I ended up doing at that firm was, you know, again, starting out as a commercial litigator, but every time something was employment related, I kind of grabbed onto it. And over the course of the 14 years that I was there, I slowly metamorphosized from a commercial litigator into an employment lawyer so that by the time I left, my entire career was employment law and I had built a practice that allowed me to come over and, and develop that at much cellist. So what, what specifically was it about employment law as opposed to all of the other areas of law, most of which we have at our firm, that just drew you to that specific specialty? Well, there was no math involved, so that was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the firm I was at, so, so I've been with Much now for 10 and a half years. And like I said, I was at this other firm for 14 years before that. Before I was there, I was at a small commercial litigation boutique where um, this was way back in the mid nineties. I'm sounding really old now. And the way the managing partner dealt with assignments at that point, there was a sort of a pool of associates at that firm and he would dole out cases as they came into the firm. And one case that was assigned to me was representing a staffing agency who had been sued by a woman. I still know her name. I won't mention it now, but it's still fixed in my head. Her claim was that she had been fired in breach of a verbal lifetime employment contract. So she said she was guaranteed lifetime employment. And so, you know, the the termination was wrongful. So I represented that client. I ended up winning on summary judgment because you can't have a verbal contract for lifetime employment. If I had to think of the reason, I think it violates the statute of frauds. So, but you know, that was a long time. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the gentleman who represented this woman later went on to become the mayor of Northbrook. But I remember at that moment in the courtroom, when the judge granted my motion for summary judgment, uh, someone came up to me before I left the courtroom and said, congratulations on kicking so-and-so's ass. And I won't mention his name either because we're protecting the innocent here, but it was sort of this victorious moment that really felt really good. And then after that, you know, anytime something came in that was even remotely employment related. So I think the next one I got was defending a, an employer in a discrimination charge at the EEOC. And just handling that, it was kind of like this light went on, you know, the, the angels sang and said, ah, this is what you were meant to do. And so anytime this managing partner of that firm was doling out cases and he said, oh, I've got a employment discrimination case, I've got a harassment case. I just reached in and grabbed it and said that was mine. There's just something about employment law that makes sense to me. It's not about the money. It's about the people. I mean, ultimately, it's all about the money. Well, let's be honest. But there's a there's a human element to it that I that, that just makes a lot of sense to me. It's instinctive. And I really, really love what I do. And I'm glad that I picked this area of practice. Talk a little bit about, because I know you do, at least at this point in your career, much of what you do is counseling. The the day-to-day calls about small items, medium-sized items, very, very large, you know, bet the company type of, of issues. Talk about that transition into the counseling role and what your experience is and, and how you uh, enjoy that. So everything I've talked about so far has been litigation, right? So, and, and, and you're right. What I do now is all counseling and transactional other than kind of supervising litigation and, and, and being the client resource for that. I was a litigator for, for years. And initially I was really jazzed about it. I found it exciting. I found it energizing and slowly, but surely I got to the point where I got tired of how contentious it was. I felt like I was obviously fighting with the opposing attorney to win. I was fighting with the judge to convince him or her that my position was the correct one. And then I was fighting with the client to get paid because, you know, no matter how successful a piece of litigation is, it's very expensive and clients often feel like they're paying too much money to fight a a battle, which sometimes is a losing battle because you're never guaranteed a win. And I got tired of being a a fighter. I'm a better lover than I am a fighter. I I find it much more rewarding to help be a peacemaker than to be a warrior. So when I 
left my prior firm and was interviewing to come to much, one of the things that I sort of, I won't say demanded, but I emphasized during the um, interviewing process. And I remember very vividly interviewing with you at that time. I said, I don't want to be a litigator anymore. I want to counsel. I want to advise employers on how to stay on the right side of the law, how to deal with their employees in a way that helps them, as I like to say, maintain peace in the workplace. But I don't want to litigate anymore. And I was told, okay, we have a whole floor of litigators. You don't need to litigate if you don't want to. And it it was really refreshing because every other firm that I interviewed at, that wasn't something that they would go for. If you were an employment lawyer, litigation was a necessary part of that career. And I have to say that my day-to-day life has been much more rewarding for me as a counselor and as a peacemaker than it was for me in the contentious world of litigation. And I know you love litigation, but you're also someone that likes resolve, helping clients resolve disputes. So I, I, I suspect that you can understand that that mindset that I developed. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And I, I mean, I recall our initial discussion around that in, in the, the early interviewing process uh, and also pointing out that there are you know, some of us who are also peacemakers um, who continue to, when necessary, go down the litigation track for a whole host of different reasons. But there's a reason why, you know, close to 99% of all cases get resolved. The trick is when in the process they get resolved, to your earlier point, clients are not fond of, you know, spending uh, a lot of money litigating a case that has an uncertain outcome or can have an uncertain outcome. So it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic in terms of uh, dispute resolution, typical litigation, peacemaking, and what, and what that all means. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Betsy Caprini, if you would, who was a special mentor to you. The, the commercial litigation firm that I worked at all those years ago, there were there actually were a handful of women in the firm now that I look back. And I developed a close working relationship and a friendship with Betsy. And she was really my my first real mentor. It still is a male-dominated profession. I mean, every law school class, I think, is about 50-50, sometimes 51 female, from what I understand from the statistics. But it still is a profession that, that is dominated by men. And back then, trying to figure out the kind of lawyer I wanted to be in that arena was a challenge. We had uh, a managing partner who was very much uh, an alpha male type. And I tried to initially emulate his style as a young lawyer in the profession. And that was a very assertive, bordering on aggressive style of practice. And it, it didn't work for me. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't my personality. And it didn't, it didn't work at all. And so when I developed this relationship with Betsy, she taught me first that you don't have to try to be like the men. And this goes back to the the program that we were participating in yesterday. You don't have to be a penguin. You can be a cat, be who you are. And and once I sort of developed my own style under her tutelage, things went, went much better for me. I had a case back then. It was the first case that I originated as a young associate. And it was a case where I represented a young high school girl who had been um, 
viciously sexually harassed by a posse of her male peers at the high school that she attended. And the high school happened to be owned and run and operated by a university. And her parents and she complained at the high school level to teachers and counselors and administrators. And the reaction was boys would be boys. You know, we can't do anything because they're just boys and they'll be boys. They went to the university level and voiced all sorts of complaints and nothing happened. And so uh, we brought a claim under Title IX for deliberate indifference to her plight of being in a hostile school environment because of the sexual harassment that transpired. And unfortunately, at the district court level, the judge ruled against us because he said there was no such concept as deliberate indifference. And so we appealed to the Seventh Circuit. Now, I was a very young associate. I was in my second or third year of practice, but it was my case. And I'll be damned if I was going to let anybody else argue before the Seventh Circuit, my case for my client. And I had never done this before, right? I'd done moot court in law school, but arguing before the Seventh Circuit was something completely different. And so Betsy obviously helped me, you know, during the brief writing stage, but but to prepare for the oral argument, she uh, put together a moot court. So she got people together. She and they, you know, she came up with questions for all of them to ask. And we ran a moot, you know, we ran a moot court so that I could be as prepared as possible to argue before the Seventh Circuit. And she made it so tough for me during the practice that when I actually got before the panel of judges at the Seventh Circuit, it was easy, which was a phenomenal experience, especially when I looked over at the uh, the opposing attorney who her style was to read her entire brief, which was very disappointing for me because I thought the lawyers at the Seventh Circuit were going to be these, you know, really incredible but without that mentorship of Betsy, I would never have been prepared to argue what was still the most important argument of my litigation career. We remained friends for a long time, even after I had left the firm and gone on to another firm. To this day, I actually keep in touch with her daughter, who is a lovely young woman. Betsy died of breast cancer 14 years ago. I'm very fortunate that she had the opportunity to meet my kids Cheryl, I, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing uh, what Betsy meant to you uh, and how important she was not only to help you get ready for that very, very important Seventh Circuit argument, but also in your life and meeting your children and family and, and so forth. I, I appreciate your your courage in, in expressing that about her. You know, she was really an incredible person, an incredible friend, and she really taught me a lot about the importance of mentoring the younger generation and bringing them along. And when I think about what she did for me, I try to do the same thing for the other you know, younger attorneys in our firm. And it's very timely you say that because that's the impetus for group mentoring program that we've started at the firm where we have you know multiple groups. You and I are fortunate enough to to lead one of the the subgroups of six uh, newer attorneys, uh, and it's really it's a gift to to receive you know mentorship from someone like Betsy, and many of us have had special people in our lives, uh, but it's also a gift to be able to give back and to pay that forward to the next generation. I try to do that uh, when I teach at Northwestern, and just you know make it clear to the next generation of lawyers that you're not alone. 
right? You, you don't have to do this alone. It's a collaborative sport. And, um, you know, there are plenty of people out there willing to help you. So we're, we're fortunate enough we get a chance to, to do that together. You know, obviously, over the past year, the world has changed dramatically. Your group in particular uh, has uh, fielded so many questions, so many inquiries about what to do in the pandemic, how to shut businesses down, now how to reopen businesses. So can you talk a little bit about what you've learned uh, during this time in terms of helping clients problem solve some of the specific legal issues, uh, which, which are evolving in real time, right? And, and how you're, you're, you're tackling those. We did not learn in law school how to prepare for a pandemic. There was no class on pandemic and the law. And it wasn't anything that I think any of us ever could have possibly anticipated. Last spring was the most chaotic and energizing time in, I think, my practice, but I think in the practice of law generally. It seemed like every day there was new legislation, regulations, guidance from the CDC and the WHO and state and local government entities. This was all being pumped out daily. And my group was the busiest group in the whole firm at that time. And we were both learning and teaching at the same time. So I recall one particular weekend, my partner Camille Kodadad and I poring over thousands and thousands of pages of a piece of federal legislation, trying to understand what it said and what the impact was going to be on our clients and what we should tell them as the questions started coming in as soon as, as the next Monday morning. And like I said, it was... It was both exhausting and exhilarating at exactly the same time. The, the issues that came up were completely novel, nothing we'd ever been dealing with before. And we were, to a certain extent, practicing on the fly because there was no precedent for any of this. There was nothing that, that we could point to and say, oh, there's the answer because somebody else has dealt with this before. So you're right. At the time, a big part of what we were doing in March, April was helping our clients shut down businesses, particularly the clients in the hospitality industry, restaurants that were just shut down almost overnight. And, and how do, what do they do with their employees? What are they supposed to do with them? How to deal with their compensation, how to deal with their benefits. And they were looking to us for all the answers. And, and like I said, we were sort of learning and teaching on the fly. And as the pandemic evolved, there were more and more issues that came up partly as a result of more legislation that came out. So as an example, when the federal stimulus package came out and employees were given extra unemployment compensation from the federal government if they were receiving unemployment from their state, it had the unintended consequence that employees were earning more money by sitting on their couches watching Netflix than they would earn if they actually went back to work at their minimum wage rate. And so once some businesses were allowed to reopen, convincing their employees to come back to work became a challenge. And so tackling those types of issues that, again, nobody ever could have anticipated. And now, as you alluded to, we're, we're dealing with a lot of return to work issues. The biggest issue we're dealing with right now, and I think I'm asked this almost every day, is whether employers can mandate vaccines 
You know, can we fire employees who won't get vaccinated? Can we exclude them from the workplace if they refuse to get vaccinated? And what if somebody is fully vaccinated? Are they now exempt from all the mask wearing and hand washing and social distancing that the rest of our employees need to abide by? And these are really fascinating issues. It involves a conversation and an analysis because there's so many variables that can be in play when deciding how to deal with employees in a particular circumstance. It's really fascinating to have been practicing in the era of a global pandemic. You know, I, like I said before, I've always loved what I do. Every day there's something new and interesting that comes across my desk. But COVID has been by far the biggest challenge and the most exciting time. I know it's strange to call it exciting when so many people are and so many businesses are suffering, but it's really been a time where my team has had to come together to collaborate on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, to discuss ideas and approaches and collaborate on developing documents and strategies for our clients. And that I think has been one of the most rewarding aspects of the the past year is being able to work so closely with my colleagues while at the same time we are so separated because we're all working remotely. It's been a really interesting time. Going forward, these issues are going to continue. There are some businesses that have been open the whole time. There are some businesses that are just starting to reopen. And there's others that won't reopen yet for months. And so the issues are going to continue. And the need for the type of advice that my team provides is going to continue. When we talk about the future of law, what it looks like, Uh, the types of questions that we're being asked, the expectations around how we help our clients resolve those types of issues. We're, We're also talking about a shift in how we as attorneys work together. As you just described, your team gets together, right? You're to the extent there, uh, there, there was not full collaboration pre-pandemic, there certainly is full collaboration now, because that's really the only way that we can help our clients, right, get to the right answer uh, at the end of the day. So, I, you know, when I look at it and think about the future of law and try to glean what the positives are going to be, God knows there's there are so many downsides uh, and so many difficulties and challenges that many, many people have, have struggled with. It's the the ability to see differently how we practice, what we do, how we uh, work with each other, and how we work with our clients. You know, quite frankly, in your your old area of practice and litigation, I think there's going to be a, a shift there as well. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like because the notion of of collaboration within litigation, uh, certainly in an adversarial situation, is is quite different. But I think it. I think there's going to be a shift. Uh, I think people are just going to see the world a whole lot differently coming out of this year of real tragedy. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we, as much as we have experienced what we have experienced, have had it much better than so many other people. And and it's something that you know you know structurally we're going to have to come to terms with as a society. Uh, and and I'm hopeful that that we'll we'll be doing that. Now, Cheryl, just switching gears for a minute, rumor has it that you are remarkably good at at identifying movie lines from specific movies. Now, 
I will not quote lines from movies and put you on the spot, but as someone who has the ability to do that, any any of your favorite movies come to mind? The one that comes to mind right now is Groundhog Day, only because every day in the last 365 has felt exactly like Groundhog Day. <laughs> Groundhog Day for sure. And in terms of books that you're reading, things that you're watching, ways uh, that you have been able to spend your time when you're not doing all the things that you've described that, that you've been doing uh, during the pandemic to help the firm and help its clients and so forth. What have you been doing? What have you been watching? Um, how are you unwinding uh, just to keep uh, some semblance of sanity during this time? Well, those people who know me best know that I have big difficulty unwinding. I tend to be um, pretty high intensity. So when the weather's nice, I walk my dog. In fact, before this podcast today, I did go out and and take my dog for a walk around the block uh, because the weather happens to be unseasonably warm pretty much every day. We had the fortune of buying a, a Peloton last January, probably the best pandemic purchase I can possibly imagine and uh, become quite addicted to that. We're developing a hashtag much riders team for the, the Peloton. If you I just one. I just saw that today. Yeah. <laughs> And um, like probably everybody else, I spend uh, entirely too much time watching Netflix. I'm currently watching season 10 of Criminal Minds. I believe there are 12 seasons. There's something about the formula to each episode. It's sort of a predictable formula. And I, I like how things wrap up and the character development is wonderful. The subject matter is extremely dark, but it's it's definitely uh, something that I've, I've been watching probably for the last nine months. On the lighter side, I do watch American Idol. But I do enjoy the backstories of all these contestants who grew up, you know, in a, in a small town with very little and they're putting all of their hopes and dreams into this one moment. I think that's kind of fun. As far as books, I'm currently reading a book called She Said, which I found on my daughter's nightstand while she's away at college. It's written by uh, two Pulitzer Prize winning authors who cracked the Harvey Weinstein case. And as an attorney who is defending employers in respect of sexual harassment matters and, and addressing those types of internal investigations regarding sexual harassment and looking at it from the employer side, it's actually been extremely enlightening to hear these stories of all these women who were victims during that entire time period and, and getting a sense of it from, from the victim's perspective. I think it's a, it, it's, it's a good thing for, for anyone in my line of work to be reading. And I, I recommended it to my team uh, the other day on a call. I also do the Sunday Tribune crossword puzzle. We are probably one of the few families that still gets the paper edition of the Chicago Tribune that leaves newsprint on your fingers. And uh, every Sunday morning when my husband and I sit at the kitchen table, uh, I read the Sunday comics and I do the, the, the Sunday crossword puzzle. And so, the, you know, those, I guess, are the ways that I break away from my computer screen. We do get the print version of the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. It is a little odd because uh, there's, you know, we also look at the digital uh, version, but there is something to it. I, I remember to this day, the moment when my father taught me when I was a little boy, how to properly fold the New York Times. 
<laughs> so you could read each article and how it was laid out. There is actually a method to doing that. Uh, hopefully those days aren't completely over. I think they're mostly over, um, but hopefully they're not completely over because there is something so tangible about just having it in your hands. But Cheryl, you know, thank you so much for spending this time um, on much more than the law. I uh, really appreciate you you sharing sort of your path to where you are today, substantively and, and personally. We hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed the time as much as we did. So we'll see you next time on Much More Than the Law. Thanks, Ed.